You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. Katie, that was fantastic. It is so good to be with all of you. Welcome this morning. My name is Pastor Mark. If we haven't yet met, I want to give a special welcome to all the kids. You guys are awesome. And it is fantastic, genuinely fantastic to have you with us. It's great uh, to see you all out here. As we go through Galatians, I want to continue to encourage you to make sure you read it. If you can, look for it in the bulletin, look for it in the weekly update so you know the text, read it ahead of time so that you know it. Also, I would encourage you, open your Bibles um, as we go through Galatians. It's good. There's things that are very positive about having it on the screen, but there's also something very good about seeing it in your own Bible. Your mind will remember it. Um, It will capture where it is. It will help um, for memory. So I would encourage you to make sure you do that even as the words are on the screen. And also, if you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to take one from the seat in front of you as our gift to you. And if you're like, that's weird, I'm not taking your Bible, that feels like I'm stealing from church, just trust me, it's not weird. Um, We want you to have it. It gives us tremendous joy to have to replace the Bibles that are in the seats um, because we want God's Word in people's hands because it's changed our lives and we believe it will change yours as well. Let's pray and then we'll dive into Galatians chapter 2. God, we come before you just so humbled this morning. As we consider the gospel that we sang of and consider what you have done for us, and we consider you, Lord, as our living hope. Lord, we just say thank you. Thank you so, so much for shedding your blood for our sins so that we could have life with you. God, we come before you and I want to lift up Barb Brubaker. Lord, and her family to you. I pray that you would comfort her, be near her, Lord, in these days. God, as it's hard, um, losing Sheldon, Lord, I pray that you be with her. We thank you um, that he is with you, Lord. We celebrate that together. We also do come and pray um, for our country. We pray for um, the bills that have been before us. We're thankful that the bill was initially stopped. Um, We pray that you would continue to work, Lord. We want to see people Um, who understand and value life as you do, knowing that we are all made in your image. Um, And even more um, for our country, um, we pray that they would know the gospel and that they would compel them to see why it is so important that you are the giver of life and you decide when life is given and when life is taken away that we wouldn't take your place. And so I pray that you would help us, give us strength, Um, to to advocate and to fight for these things. But above all, would you change people's hearts and lives in this country? Would you revive this nation? God, that's what it desperately needs above all. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, let's start um, by reading Galatians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. 
But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who have seemed to be influential, what they are makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality, those... I say, who seemed influential, added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted to the, um, with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. I want you to ingrain this phrase from verse 5 in your mind so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. There's lots of different ways to look at a text and to do a sermon. And today I want us to start by looking at the key to the passage, right? This is what the Holy Spirit wants to convey about everything, above everything in this passage. And so I want to ask you a couple of very simple questions. If you're a Christian, what does this miraculous statement cause in your mind? That the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. I'll give you a moment to think about it. Then I have a second question. Christians, what does this miraculous statement cause you to feel in your heart? I want you to really take a moment and think about this. What does this cause you to feel in your heart? And if you're not a Christian, first and foremost, just welcome. We are so grateful that you are here. And let me ask you the same questions. What does this cause in your mind and heart, that the God of the universe would preserve the key to your salvation throughout all of history for you in this moment. The good news that God, both now and forever, because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we can be with him. What does that cause in you? And I want you to keep thinking about these things as I preach today. But I just feel like we need to take a moment and stop and pray and ask God to help our hearts respond the way that they ought to respond to such a miraculous truth. So let's pray together. Oh God, we come before you and I pray that very thing. I pray that our hearts would respond properly to this truth. God, we come and confess that way too often our hearts do not respond properly to your word as they should. Too often we can hear it, God, and nothing changes. Nothing changes in our mind, nothing changes in our heart. But God, I beg you, I pray that we today, that you would move by the power of your spirit to help us understand how life should look different because of this fact. We pray these things in your name. Amen. And so I want you to, to, as we study, to keep thinking on these things, right? Because we're going to get a little glimpse, we get a little glimpse in our passage into one of the billions and billions of ways that the king of all kings preserved the gospel throughout history for us in this moment. And, of course, um, the rest of 
humanity. I want your heart to feel, right? I want your heart to feel deeply. For some of you, you're going to be inclined to awe. For some, you're going to be inclined to joy. For some, you're going to be inclined to thankfulness. Whatever your heart feels, let it feel it as we study, right? We know as Christians that we're not supposed to be guided by our emotion, right? We're guided by God, right? The truth of God that's found in his word. And yet it's also unhealthy when we never let ourselves respond to the miraculous truths in God's word, right? That should cause something in us. And so as your mind and your heart, um, as you consider these things, let's, I just want to challenge you, consider what this should mean for your life, both individually, right, that's important, but also collectively. Remember that most of the New Testament, we read it individualistically. Most of the New Testament, he's writing to the church as a whole. So what does this mean for the church? And as we consider the passage as a whole, um, you know some passages are, are they're really complicated, and you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. This one's not that complicated, right? We can see it pretty clearly. So if, just a reminder, if you've missed the first couple weeks with us, as we've been learning, the agitators, the Judaizers, they've been speaking a false gospel to the Galatians. And so these Galatians, these people, they were looking to discredit Paul so people would follow um, their teaching instead of what Paul had taught them about the gospel. And one of the ways that they are attempt to portray Paul is as a bad or even rebellious pupil of the apostles in Jerusalem, right? We can see that very clearly by how he's responding and writing to the Galatians, right? So these agitators, these Judaizers, as many Jews did, believed that the Gentiles could be saved, but they were not on the same level as the Jews. They weren't fully God's people. They weren't fully brought into God's covenant blessing without circumcision in adherence to the law thereafter. It was Christ plus something. And in this section, Paul is going to argue no. His sphere of ministry might have looked different than the apostles, right? They would spread the gospel to the Jews. That's what the apostles were doing. And Paul would go to the Gentiles as an apostle. But there was no fundamental difference in their understanding of the essence of the gospel. A gospel which, remember, we looked at last week, he received from God and not from the apostles. So let's look at some of these verses together. In verse One, we see that after 14 years, Paul went up to Jerusalem, right? Showing it's been a long time since he had seen the apostles. He didn't get the gospel from them. That's what we talked about last time. And then he brings along his buddies, uh, Barnabas and Titus. And then if you look at verse 2, the question really is, he went up, why? Why did he go up, right? We see it's because of a revelation from God. He does this on purpose, right? He's trying to show them that it's God who's leading his life. It's God who's leading him. That just as God directed him to go and preach the gospel to the Galatians, he's also directed him to Jerusalem. And as I was studying this week, I just felt this crazy mix of humility and amazement. Because it's absolutely crazy for me to consider how God led me in my life for this moment to stand here in Muskoka and preach the gospel to you. And it's crazy that God knew before the foundations of the world that in this moment you would be here today and that he preserved the gospel for you. That's a mind-boggling thing. If you look at the second part of verse 2, it's very interesting because it seems to be counterintuitive to everything that we said last week. 
right? If you remember last week, Paul reiterates himself a lot. And so I told you a million things basically two times. And what were they, right? The first thing, over and over, Paul was saying what? He's saying, the gospel is not for man. The gospel I preach to you is not for man. And then we saw him remind them powerfully that the gospel he preached to them, he says, it's not from man, it came from God. It's not from man, it came from God. And here's the best example. It's my life. When God broke into my life and changed me. And as we looked last week, did you notice any lack of confidence? Was he waffling at all? No. Any lack of conviction in Paul as he wrote to them? No. So why then here does it appear that he's being led to Jerusalem to see if the gospel he's preaching would be approved by man, right? Would be approved by the apostles. Why does he, why does he say, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain? This is why context is important and why we let the Bible interpret the Bible. Follow these things with me. So we've already considered the verses that directly precede this text. And we see, you know what, that doesn't, that's not pointing to Paul who's waffling on what he has learned. Right? His argument was strong and passionate based on meeting Jesus face to face. And now we consider the context of this passage. Right? What did we say at the start is at the crux of this passage? Right? It's verse 5. So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. That's what the Holy Spirit's main concern. As he moves Paul to write to the Galatians, he wants to show them that. And so the truth of the gospel would be preserved. So now let's look at our entire passage altogether. Take five seconds, scan it quickly with your eyes in your Bible. Look at verses uh, 1 through 10. What's the concern? What's the overall concern in the text? What is a part of preserving and guarding the truth of the gospel, right? It's the unity of the church around the truth of the gospel. Paul goes to Jerusalem, not because he's unsure if the gospel that he preached was true, but because the unity of the gospel and the unity of the church was at stake. Because right from the start of the church, and you know this, you see this in the New Testament, there were lots of potential fissures, right? Potential breaks, potential for disunity in the church, right? Between the Jewish wings, people that had Jewish background that were coming to know the Lord, like some of these Gentiles, or like some of these Galatians, and then the Gentile wings of the church, also some of the Galatians, right? As people were coming to know Christ. And so they had the potential, right? This very issue that... Paul's been writing to the Galatians about, he says, this thing could fracture the church. And why would this feel like running in vain? If you remember back to Easter, we studied 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So I just want to remind you of the first few verses. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul launches into this massive defense of the gospel, right? particularly of the resurrection, as an essential element of the gospel. But remember, look at how he starts it. right? And this is what we looked at at Easter. right? Now I would remind you, brothers. So he's talking to Christians about the gospel. And then he reminds them of the gospel work in their life. What does he say? He says, um, which you received. What's that? Past tense. In which you stand. That's what? 
present tense, by which you are being saved. What's that? That's present to future tense. And so if you remember at Easter, we said that the gospel is not just a doorway that you walk through and then you throw it aside and you're like, well, thank goodness I'm saved. I don't need the gospel anymore, right? No, the gospel, we need the gospel every single moment. The gospel is the whole house, right? And then we read this last line. It says this, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed what? Believed in vain. So what would cause them to believe in vain? What would cause Paul to feel like he had run in vain, right? Even though that isn't true, right? That's a whole different sermon. If he believed he preached the gospel, right? And then people didn't hold fast to it, just like this. If they didn't stand in the gospel, then it would feel, then it would be in vain. It would feel like he had gone in vain, And what would cause people not to hold fast to the gospel, right? That's the very issue that's at stake as he's writing to the Galatians. The very issue at stake is the unity of the church, right? It's the unity around the gospel. It's whether Gentiles were true people of God, brought into his covenant promise through the work of the cross of Christ alone, or through the cross plus plus, right? Plus the law, plus works, And so the unity of the gospel was paramount because the church is built on the truth of the gospel in which unity plays a tremendous part. This is why Paul went, and this is why he wanted to make sure he was not running in vain. And this unity part is important, and I'm going to preach this passage up here until we've all memorized every single word, and we together as a body of believers reflect this perfectly which is never going to happen, so we're going to keep striving, and I'm going to keep preaching it, right? Because you, you have to be gripped by this passage in John 17. Like you got to understand that this is Jesus, right? The preeminent one, the one who's above everything, the one in whom real, true life is found. He's holding the atoms of your body together. He's causing your chest right now, in this moment. This is Jesus. That's Jesus, right, holding you together, right? The one who shed his blood for you. He's praying for the church. And this is what's on his heart. He says, I do not ask for these things only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you loved me. I want you to look at this text and see what Jesus is praying, right? If you look at the pink, who's that? That those who will believe in me, who's that? He's praying for the church, right? That they may all be one. What's he praying for in the yellow? He's praying for unity, right? Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in one. See that word just, right? What kind of unity is he praying for? Right? He's praying for heavenly unity. He's praying for eternal unity. He's praying for unity that originates out of the triune God. That's the kind of unity that he's praying for. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
Why is he praying this? Right? He's praying this so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved and then go out and be proclaimed. Right? That people's hearts and lives would be changed. That people living in pain, living in bondage, apart from God, would be changed right, through the testimony of the church by their unity that makes no sense. And then look at the blue, right? What's found in this heavenly, eternal unity? Jesus says, the glory that you, God, he's praying to God, that you have given me, I, don't miss this, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. What's found in this heavenly, eternal unity? It's glory. It's glory given to us, given to us, the church, by God. Right, that the church would reflect the glory of God through its uncommon unity. And that the church would guard the unity of the church given to us by Jesus. This is our job. This is why Paul went. And then the orange. In, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know you sent me. So they know they sent Jesus in that they would know the love that loved them even as you loved me, right? So they will know Jesus and then they will know the love of God the Father. And what's the vehicle for how the world will know the love of God the Father? It's through the unity of the church. This is why God calls Paul to Jerusalem, right? The unity of the church and the preservation of the truth of the gospel, which go hand in hand. And then if you look at verse 3, here comes the real test, right? We get the real test right away. It's the real test of the essence of the gospel. Paul's friend Titus, he's a Gentile believer, and here's the question. As he brings him along, do the apostles force him to be circumcised? Titus must have been really confident in Paul's gospel as he went along, right, in this process to stand before. That would be, if I'm honest, slightly nerve-wracking, and yet he had absolute confidence in the gospel that was being preached. So do the apostles force him to be circumcised? No, they don't, right? They show the same understanding of the gospel that Paul was preaching to the Galatians. And then what do they do in verses 4 and 5, right? They stand firm on the gospel, right? God gives us a glimpse of how he preserved the truth of the gospel throughout history, right? He does this billions and billions of times, right? By people standing, by Christians standing firm in the gospel. And that's crazy, isn't it, right? That God would choose the church, right? (laughs) We're perfect, just kidding, right? With all of our mess, all of our disagreements, all of our failures, that God would choose us to be the vehicle, right, along with his word, right, which he, with, with, with which he preserves the gospel throughout history. That's what he does. He chooses faithful women and faithful men to hold fast to the truth of the gospel found in his word and to share the gospel with people who don't know Christ. That's crazy. That's how he has preserved the truth of the gospel for you in this moment. And Christians, I want you to think back on your Christian life for a moment. Consider this. Who has God used to preserve the truth of the gospel for you? Who is God using right now to proclaim the truth of the gospel to you? First and foremost, just praise God for those people. My thoughts go back to my parents 
and my brother. My thoughts go back to faithful elders and pastors. My thoughts go back to faithful, faithful Sunday school teachers, right? And faithful friends in my life who genuinely love God and wanted to run hard after him. And so first and foremost, I really want to encourage you, thank God for those people, right? That's one of the ways that God has asked us, called us, modeled for us in scripture to pray, thanking God for other Christians because it builds unity in the church. But secondly, I want you to consider this. Does that remembrance of how God used people in your life to preserve the truth of the gospel for you, does that not cause tremendous desire in your heart, in your mind, for you to go and do the same thing? As you've been pondering what you would do with this tremendous truth that we put up at the start, and as you look back on what God has done and people that he's used in your life, does that not renew your vigor? Right? As you consider God and you desire that God would use you to preserve the truth of the gospel and proclaim it to others. Doesn't this renew your desire to disciple your children, parents, right? To read God's word with them, to pray with them, to walk with them, to teach them about God, right? That you wouldn't leave that to be your spouse's job, but you would be remembered by them as someone God used to preserve the truth of the gospel for them. What a tremendous, tremendous privilege. Does this not cause you to get um, with, I don't know, just renewed vigor to get on your knees and to pray for your children and to pray for your grandchildren that don't know God himself, right? My prayer for all of you, and some of you have experienced this and some of you are waiting, that one day that they would know, those people that don't yet know Christ in your life, that they would know the holes that you wore in your knees in the sleep that you gave up, in the pleasure that you gave up as you were on your knees before God, begging God that they would come to know him. And I pray for you that you would experience that miraculous moment where all of a sudden God opens their eyes and they come to know the Lord. What a magnificent thought. What a magnificent privilege. I hope this compels your soul to want to do that. Do you have a renewed fire as we consider this truth? To live in unity with your spouse and your children and the church, right? Does this not cause you to want to forgive that person that you refuse to forgive for way too long? Does this not cause your heart to be soft and broken when someone comes to you with the pain that you have caused them, right? Does it not cause you to want to take responsibility for something even though you don't feel like you have done it? And yet... It has caused hurt for one of God's children and is causing division in God's glorious church. Does this truth not cause you to want God's glory found in the unity of believers above your own pride? Men, does this plant in you a desire to be an elder, to have the special calling to do this well? Women, do you desire this for your husband to to bear the glorious privilege of sharing your husband with the church for the sake of the gospel. Should this truth, right, that God preserved the gospel for us through the church not stir our hearts to want to work in children's ministry or want to come alongside and disciple a youth to take them under your wing, as you remember these faithful saints who God used to preserve the gospel for you, Right? Does that not cause you to want to take up the mantle of the church 
And we have to understand this is the mantle of the church. It's parents and the church together. It's not just parents. It's parents plus the church that we would teach our children together of our matchless king. Right? And that's not a burden. That's joy. That is a tremendous, tremendous joy. In way too many churches, the challenge that they face is we don't have enough people that want to experience this joy. And my prayer one day is that instead of too few, that Christine would have too many people that want to disciple children downstairs in kids' ministry. That she would have to disappoint your soul by telling you there's no more room. I am so sorry. You can't serve in kids' ministry. I know you really, really want to, but we just don't have any more room. And that you would have to find another way to go and to do this thing that God has called you to do. That is my prayer for our church. My prayer is this glorious thought would compel your heart and mind to want to be used by God in these ways, right? To stand in awe of the fact that somehow this is God's good plan to use Christians, right? To use you, to use really just messed up, evil, sinful, broken people like me to preserve the truth of the gospel and to preach it to others. Knowing God's plan and desire would be to use you as the vessel for him to do life-changing, eternal work. I hope that thrills your soul. And let's just look at one more thing in verse 5 before we move on to verses 6 through 10. In verse 5, here we see how God uses Paul and Barnabas and Titus to preserve the gospel. Right? Not by watering it down, not by adding to it, not by removing things from it. Right? Is unity important? Yes. But it needs to be unity that is built around the truth. You have to remember what's at stake here. Both sides of this argument believed in Jesus. Right? That, they couldn't just draw a circle around Jesus and say, this is enough. Because for the Judaizers, it was the cross plus works. And for Paul, Barnabas, and Titus, the apostles stood firm and said, no, salvation is found in Christ alone. And so what do we need to do? Right? In order to be used by God to preserve the truth of the gospel well, we need to know the true gospel that comes from God's word. Right? Just like they teach bank tellers to spot counterfeits by knowing genuine money, we need to do the same thing with the gospel. And now you can look at verses 6 through 10. Um, we see a few things that jump out quickly. The first is this. Paul reiterates, right, that the apostles added nothing to his gospel. Right? He's like, even though you, they lived with Jesus, he's like, the, the gospel that I've got, that I preached to you, it was the same gospel because I also received it from Jesus. Number two, we see the difference in their callings, don't we, in verses 6 through 10. Paul preached to the Gentiles, right, Peter to the Jews. But Paul's also reiterating what we looked at the first week, right, that Paul is once again affirmed by God through Peter, James, and John as an apostle, right? As someone who is a messenger from God sent to the Galatians to teach them the true gospel. And then in verse 10, a very specific reminder, a reminder of how God causes us to live differently, right? Just as we had looked at with the EFC thing, to consider others above ourselves, to show mercy to others because we have been shown the ultimate mercy, Right? So what does that cause us to do? It causes us to care for the poor. And so many of you are already really great at this. And so I just want to encourage you, 
Keep it up. Keep going. Don't lose heart. It's an amazing testimony of the transforming power of the gospel. And if you're not quite there yet, look to someone who's doing this well and ask them what they can do and ask God to move your heart in this way. The other thing that we see in verses 6 through 10, and one of the things that you know that I encourage you over and over again to do when you study God's word is to pray that God would teach you about himself. Right? Because God is the good news of the gospel, right? He's the center. He's the goal of the gospel. Knowing him more and more for all of eternity is the reason that the greatest joys that you've ever experienced in this life, the greatest joys that this world has to offer, things like your wedding day, the birth of a child. Remember the joy that was in those moments? That's just a tiny reflection of the joy that we're going to experience in heaven as we spend eternity getting to know God more. And so as we consider the gospel, right, we learn much about the love of God. We learn much about God's sovereignty. We looked at it last week, seeing him doing all this work. And Paul says it a bunch in here too, for he who worked through Peter, right, and he who worked in me. But we consider this truth in the yellow, that God shows no partiality, right? And perhaps the best way to understand this truth about God I mean, to appreciate his goodness is to remind ourselves of how painful it is to live in a world that is absolutely full of partiality. John MacArthur says it this way. He says, we tend to put everyone in some kind of stratified category, higher or lower than other people. It has to do with their looks. It has to do with their wardrobe. It has to do with the kind of car they drive, the kind of house they live in. Sometimes it has to do with their race, sometimes with their social status sometimes with outward characteristics of personality. All of these things with God are non-issues. They have no significance at all. They mean absolutely nothing to him. And so I want to ask you this. When was the last time that you were on the wrong end of partiality in this world? When's the last time that you were on the wrong end of partiality in this world where you experienced the pain of others being partial against you? It's a painful experience, isn't it? It's a painful thing to have the world do this to you. And yet I want us to remember and praise God that this is not what we experience with God and the gospel. God is completely impartial. Instead, in Christ, we get to experience this, that there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. No partiality based on ethnicity. No partiality based on socioeconomic status. No partiality based on gender. In the gospel, right, we experience what the world has no concept of, and that's why we should act differently. Right? Because this is all that the world knows, but it's not all that we know. Because in Christ, we have the unity of the gospel and in the unity of the church. Right? Because the truth of the gospel was preserved for you, church, by God himself. And we, when we're saved from it, when, when we're saved by it, sorry, when we stand firmly in it, or when we live in it with a unity that the world knows very little of, God is glorified, isn't he? And the truth of the gospel is preserved. Let's pray together.
Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him, to Jesus, be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen? Amen. Amen. God bless you as you go. We'll have elders up here. We'd love to pray with you. Um, If not, uh, we will see you next week. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.